0: Hello, and welcome to the Mary Unity Podcast. Our work focuses on enhancing understanding, reducing alienation, and fostering reconciliation between the Catholic Church and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal streams of Christianity. Today's episode is being released on January 18th to celebrate the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. The Week of Prayer began in 1908 and is now globally recognized by all Christians and is a call to prayer for a deepening of unity within the body of Christ. And now to learn more about the week of prayer and to find resources on hosting your own time of prayer, please follow the link in the show notes below. We're also excited to release this interview in partnership with our friends at New City Press. New City is continually releasing wonderful content, both published books and digital events, on various topics, including ecumenism. We wanted to co-sponsor this particular episode, as within it, I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Harmon of Gardner Webb University, who recently published his book, Baptists, Catholics, and the Whole Church Partners in the Pilgrimage to Unity, which is published through New City Press. Steve is a Baptist theologian who writes and lectures extensively on ecumenism. He also serves on the Baptist World Alliance and their dialogues with the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, which is the Vatican's ecumenical office. Within our conversation, we dis- uh, discuss his newest book, A Hopeful Vision for Ecumenism and the Church, along with ways that receptive ecumenism, which we've talked before in previous episodes, in local communities can play in the work of Christianity. I would encourage you to check out Steve's new book, as I really enjoyed it and was encouraged by the vision it painted regarding the pilgrimage of Christianity. I'll be including the link for the book in the show notes below. But for now... Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Harmon. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, just to get us started here, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of your own background and your introduction to uh, ecumenism. And you know, what was your first experiences with that, especially as it relates to the Catholic Church?
1: Okay, I'm going to go way back and talk about where I grew up and my experience of a sense of calling to ministry there that led in several stages of directions into what became involvement in ecumenism. I grew up in central Texas, a little town called Rosebud, not that far from Waco, Texas, where Baylor University is. And looking back, growing up in that setting provided a kind of ecumenical formation that, that ended up being directly relevant to my work in Baptist-Catholic ecumenical encounter. I did grow up in Texas where there is a large Hispanic population, uh, much of which is Catholic, and that was true of the place where I grew up and the kids I went to school with, That was also near a community that had been founded by German immigrants called Westphalia, uh, after Westphalia in Germany, which was a heavily Catholic area of Germany. And these German immigrants to Texas were Catholic. They planted a, a, a church there with its own parochial school, And along the way, the kids who went to that school through eighth grade then went to high school with me. And so I went to to school with kids who were Hispanic Catholics and kids who were descended from German immigrant Catholics to uh, slightly different expressions of Catholicism with a, a vibrant ecclesial life. And I was able to recognize that There were a lot of things that we had in common. My Baptist church and their Catholic churches did some of the same things in worship. And there was much that was very different that, that intrigued me. And looking back on it, I I think I began learning something about Catholic faith and practice in an ecumenically receptive way, simply by going to school with the kids that I did back then.
0: Mm.
1: Well, While I was in high school, I experienced a sense of calling to ministry. My pastor had had told me one day that, that he thought that I might end up serving as a pastor one day. I did, in fact, do that. But he also said that he thought that when I went to college and seminary and got around some professors, I'd probably recognize that God had put me together, especially for a ministry of theological education, went to Howard Payne University, Brownwood, Texas, took my Old Testament survey class, uh, required of all freshmen then, and realized within that first week of class that my former pastor was right. (laughs) And did pursue the rest of my education with with that more particular sense of calling in mind. I did think initially that I would be a biblical scholar, probably an Old Testament scholar because of that initial uh, resonance with that Old Testament survey class. But then the following year, I took Greek and fell in love with that language, minored in Greek. Went to my Master of Divinity of Work in seminary thinking I would be a New Testament professor. Took all of my electives that I could in Greek exegesis, New, Te- New Testament textual criticism, and courses like that. And then I took systematic theology. My theology professor. I recognized that I'd chosen to write all of my papers on second century Christian theologians wanting to keep everything as close to the New Testament as I possibly could. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus of Lyon, Le- of and some others. And, and he said, Steve, I, I know that you want to be a New Testament professor, but you need to know that Baptists have all of those that we need. <laughs> But what, what we need is someone to do some work uh, taking some of your linguistic and textual skills and interests into the next few centuries after that and exploring patristic literature, patristic theology, the early church fathers and mothers. I ended up being convinced by that. I took him up on it, did my doctoral studies in theology and focusing especially on historical theology. But within that, I did a doctoral dissertation on patristic theology, focusing on an aspect of the thought of Origen and Clement of Alexandria and Gregory of Nyssa. So I began my my research in that way. Post-graduation, I was hired to teach theology broadly, uh, systematic theology, historical theology, ethics, courses along those lines, in a Baptist-related school of divinity. Many of my students were Baptist. Many of my students were not. I had a a number of students from other Christian traditions, Methodists, Presbyterians, non-denominational Christians, Pentecostals. an Episcopalian and a Lutheran early on, and I wanted to teach theology, especially when we got to the ecclesiology portion of the theology courses in such a way that did justice to their own traditions as well. I I thought that they ought to be formed by their own theological insights of their own traditions and not simply carry a Baptist theology Into whatever setting they would be serving in denominationally. My teaching then was leading me in ecumenical directions. I was also wrestling with the tension between the period of my historical research, patristic Christianity, and Baptist faith and practice. Baptist faith and practice had long prized the New Testament uh, as the, the means by which we reform the church, the means by which we are figuring out what it means to be a church that is fully under the rule of Christ. And we had a tendency to skip over everything that came later, especially if what came later uh, looked like it was a corruption of pure New Testament faith and practice. And that meant that there was a good bit of tension between how Baptists read what they saw of early Christianity in the new Testament and some of the things that came after the new Testament and early Christianity. Um, I was doing a lot of my, my research and writing Then wrestling with how Baptists might receive the larger Christian tradition as their own heritage. Hmm. Well, about the time I was doing that and moving in more ecumenical directions in my teaching, I received an invitation from the General Secretary of the Baptist World Alliance to be part of an ecumenical dialogue that we had launched with the Anglican communion worldwide. They especially wanted uh, at least one Baptist member of the commission to have some expertise in patristics, because that was also a period that was uh, influential for and prized by the Anglican tradition. I participated in the North American phase of that dialogue in 2002. We met in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And in the experience of being a part of that dialogue, I experienced something of a calling within my calling to be a theological educator. I I came to realize that all kinds of threads in my theological education, my background, my interests, uh, my teaching and research were intertwined and uh, pulling me toward involvement in this form of ecumenical encounter. It, it energized me. It excited me. It it made me feel as if I, as a theologian, were able to do something rather directly to make a difference in the life of the church. and And that led to a subsequent invitation to be a part of the Baptist-Catholic International Dialogue, We had a phase two series of those conversations, 2006 through 2010, that I was a part of. We're in the current series right now that began in 2017 as phase three. But I was also invited to be part of some pre-conversations exploring the possibility of dialogue at the international level between the Baptist World Alliance and the Eastern Orthodox churches, as well as... uh, uh, involvement on the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches, representing the Baptist World Alliance. So that's kind of a long-winded uh, summary of how I got to where I am right now as a Baptist ecumenist, writing about Baptist-Catholic ecumenical relationships.
0: Yeah, no, this is wonderful. This is I I didn't know this whole backstory. Um, I knew a, a little bit about it, and you mentioned it a little bit within your book, which we'll get to. Uh, if I could ask is is um, an interest in patristics or the church fathers which you know is um, at the period following uh, the the writing of the New Testament and how the early church was interpreting these and living out the gospel is this uh, something that you see becoming more uh, of interest within the Baptist circles you're in were you were you kind of uh, a, a trailblazer in this way or is this something that's kind of in the water within Baptist thought?
1: I'm not the first one to do this, and uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that I'm not the only one doing this now. There, there was a still-living, uh, long-tenured Baptist church historian named Glenn Henson. Uh, Glenn Henson taught at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for several decades after some... Uh, shifts and controversies within the Southern Baptist Convention. He finished out his career teaching at a a, a then newly founded seminary, the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. He had long been interested in patristics. He was a patristic scholar himself, but especially the the riches of spirituality within that post-New Testament early Christian tradition. Back in the 1960s, he began taking his students to uh, the the Abbey where Thomas Merton was a monk. Oh, yeah, I guess uh, I mean. His students met Merton. Uh, even after Merton's death, he continued to take them there. Um, that that was a form of Baptist Catholic ecumenical encounter going on uh, post Vatican II. In theological education, shaping uh, two or three generations of Baptist ministers who participated in those embodied ecumenical encounters with with Catholic monasticism. Mm-hmm. So Glenn Henson was doing a lot of this before I was. He also served on the the national dialogue that we had for a time between uh, Southern Baptist theologians and the and representatives delegated by the US. Conference of Catholic Bishops. and he he was a member of the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches as well.
0: Mm.
1: Now more recently, a number of my fellow Baptist scholars, uh, both in the the Southern Baptist Convention today and beyond it, i'm I'm identified with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. But not only here in the United States, elsewhere, uh, I'm aware of many Baptist theologians who have chosen to do focused research in patristics for, I think, many of the same reasons, that this recognition that there is a bigger church before Baptists, we belong to it, it belongs to us, and there are riches there to be retrieved that, that can help make us more faithful followers of Jesus Christ
0: yeah I, I love that I was um, just thinking about how important it is to retrieve that rich history and recognize it as uh, you know all of a Christian's history. you know it's not just simply like an Orthodox history or Catholic history. we have a shared scripture and the revealed Word of God but we do have this shared history together and if we see ourselves as the body of Christ we can't just lop ourselves off from that history and there might be new points of unity uh, as we explore that more and more so that's really encouraging to see that as it's been you know, a big part of my own, my own journey. You mentioned in your most recent book that came out, Baptists, Catholics, and the Whole Church, that you have a, uh, an ecumenical dream that Baptists would enter into full communion with the Catholic Church while retaining their own ecclesial identity. And you give an example of the Benedictines, which is a Catholic religious order, I'm sure like Dominicans or uh, Franciscans, if those are others are familiar with those. But I was wondering if you could just kind of speak on this. What, what does this look like on the ground? How do you envision this? And do you see this uh, as being maybe a desire from other Catholics or I'm sorry, from other Baptists as well? And maybe ways in which the Catholic Church could, uh, in hospitality, make, make room for that?
1: I'll unpack a few layers of that. What, what I don't mean by that, uh, envisioning that, that Catholic, not <laughs> I did the same thing you did, that sure. Baptists might be a, a distinctive way of being Catholic in full communion with Rome, but maintaining their, their own distinctiveness as an ecclesial community and, and bearer uh, of certain historic ecclesial gifts. I don't mean by that something like a home to Rome paradigm of ecumenism, uh, whereby all the other churches realize the error of their ways, and they turn from them, and they seek formal admission to the Catholic Church, so that eventually there is only one Church of Jesus Christ, which is the Church of Rome. Uh, I'm trying not to caricature that kind of perspective, but it is there. And there are probably some Baptists who might read me writing that and, and worry that that's what I mean.
0: Sure.
1: Um, the original spark for, for thinking of it quite in that way came out of, and I can't remember where I read it first by now, but it was it was connected with the international dialogue between the Uh, the the World Methodist Council and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, that they've had several phases of that dialogue. One of those phases did focus on receptive ecumenism that I think we may talk about a bit later in our conversation. That's a very important ecumenical paradigm for my book. But one of the participants in that... uh, mentioned that a catholic participant in the methodist catholic dialogue had observed that he had always thought of John Wesley the the founder of methodism as something of a a founder of a religious order within the one church hmm. that is he he wasn't trying to start a separate denomination he was a church of england priest at the time but he sought to renew the the bigger church to which he belonged, and the bigger church to which Anglicans belonged, uh, through taking up practices of spiritual renewal, mm-hmm. uh, sort of what a religious order does mm-hmm. that that does have full communion with the Catholic Church. Well, I kind of took up that idea and, and ran with it, and suggests that and suggested that however we get to Uh, a fully visibly united church in the ecumenical future, whatever that looks like, it might involve something like each one of our currently separate traditions, which does have a distinctive historical journey as a people of God uh, that has shaped each one of the denominational traditions in particular ways so that each one of them uh, uniquely bears some ecclesial gifts that are not exactly preserved in the same way in other denominational traditions. That This is probably a good time for unpacking a bit of what receptive ecumenism is all about. Yeah, yeah. It, it's something that's been going on naturally in the church for a long time, but more recently, some ecumenists, Paul Murray, a, a British Catholic theologian at the University of Durham is Uh, one of the major shapers of this paradigm in, in terms of academic theological work, for receptive ecumenism, you get to the ecumenical future not by merging the denominations into one super church and not by picking one denomination as the one that's right and all of us finding unity under that umbrella, but rather by sharing with one another some of these distinctive patterns of faith and practice that we might mutually begin to recognize, hey, in this other tradition over here, there's something about their faith and practice that, that's not historically been a part of my tradition, but I can see that it's something that, that helps lead us deeper into full participation in the life of God, It it makes us more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we could receive that gift into our own tradition without giving up some of those unique ecclesial gifts that make us the distinctive people of God that we are. Uh, But the emphasis is not on figuring out what do I have to share that everybody else needs? What does my tradition need? That others may be able to give us as each one of the traditions begins to do that, uh, perhaps in a more natural kind of way, perhaps in a spirit guided kind of way. We may end up becoming more and more like each other in faith and practice, so that someday in the ecumenical future, we may wake up and realize we are like each other. And there are ways in which we are different from each other that are good differences to keep happening. But some of these denominational divisions really now are very artificial and full communion may in fact be possible without giving up who we are. That's something of what I mean by Baptists may be functioning like a religious order that, that has its own way of life, its own common rule that other religious orders don't have, and yet that community following that common rule is in full communion with the church.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate that, and as I kind of think of like an an image in my mind, it's so prevalent within much of uh, ecumenical dialogues and writings, especially within Vatican II, is the idea of the, the pilgrim church and that mm-hmm. as we pilgrim together, as we move forward together closer to Christ, experiencing the life of Christ within each other and each other's traditions, we might find ways in which, you know, the, the gifts that are alive, the gifts of Christ that are alive within another tradition, might meet the, the areas of need within my own, and this is the idea of receptive ecumenism. But you can't, uh, you can't foster a receptive uh, posture within a kind of Catholic triumphalism where we're all going to be this one, everybody has to change everything they are in order to come back together to this one uh, monopoly, if you will. It, if we were to do that, then we would lose the, the various gifts that I think uh, Cardinal Casper from formerly with the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, even points out within this idea of receptive ecumenism that in some traditions uh, that those gifts, though they might exist or already exist within the Catholic church, they've come to fuller flower within other traditions. And so there's something there for us to learn. And you you kind of mentioned um, this idea within your book as well of a, you, I think you use the f- phrase, a thick ecumenism, mm-hmm. and rather than a lowest common denominator, uh, denominator of unity. And I think it's important to, to see how this is connected to receptive ecumenism, uh, because some people might hear that and hear it as a relativism, uh, which it's certainly not, but I'm sure you could spell that out really well for us, how, how we can move towards a thick ecumenism. And you mentioned also the Catholic Church's role within that and give some uh, imagery of uh, the as a community of Trinitarian participation.
1: A, a thin ecumenism might be something like a lowest common denominator basis for Christian unity, and there, there probably is some fear that that's what the ecumenical movement is about. We're, we're, we're going to, to give up all kinds of important things in order to have a weak watered down um, whatever we can find is the minimum that we share in common. That would be the basis for Christian unity, a, a thick ecumenism by contrast, would be based first on each one of the traditions knowing well who they are and going deep within their own tradition to, to know really what does it mean to be a Baptist? What does it mean to be a Catholic? Our our unity shouldn't be based on then uh, eliminating all of those things that makes Baptists and Catholics different, and when we finally find two or three things that we do share in common, then we've got a basis for unity and uh, our divisions can cease. That That's not how it should work, but rather we we first figure out how we are different and why we are different and get a good sense of uh, understanding one one another's differences without false understandings, without caricatures, uh, clearing up misunderstandings we have of each other. But then also by going deep within our own respective traditions, we may discover there uh, some common core essentials that may be in the the historical outworking of our traditions, maybe they've been blurred or obscured or forgotten, but they're there within the earlier historical origins of our traditions and can be retrieved in a way that helps us come to a, a fuller expression of ecumenism than we would have otherwise if we just quickly got down to the lowest common denominator agreement. Mm-hmm. In other words, the differences can be just as important to progress ecumenically as are the commonalities we recognize.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, a very influential understanding of the church and the church's life within your book, uh, this idea of koinonia. And it's a major theme within the latter half of, of your book. And you pull from dialogues within the Baptist World Alliance and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, bilaterals within that, as well as the World Council of Churches document the Church Towards a Common Vision. And so I was hoping that maybe you could just describe what is koinonia and why you think it's important for ecumenism uh, as it relates to our understanding of the church.
1: The word koinonia itself is a New Testament Greek word. It's sometimes translated into English in the New Testament a fellowship, but it can mean something like participation or joint participation. A koinonia is something that is true of the triune God. A father and Son in Spirit have a koinonia in the life of one another as the one triune God. That That's both true of their their internal being uh, father and son and spirit uh, fully share in the life of one another in the inner life of the triune God and in the triune God's relationship with the world in the triune God's work in the world, uh, what each person does distinctively, the other person's fully share in, they have koinonia in the mutual work of the triune God. That term is also used for the koinonia that we have with God. Uh, We have fellowship with God. We have sharing in the life of God. Because of that, that participation that we have in the life of God we therefore also have participation, sharing, fellowship in the life of one another. Because we have fellowship with the triune God, we have this kind of fellowship with each other. Now, in, the, in ecumenical theology, a lot of, of work has been drawing on this Trinitarian concept of koinonia, uh, there, there's been a huge ferment in Trinitarian theology going on for the last 50 or 60 years uh, across the Christian traditions. That's been an ecumenical work in itself. But the harvest of, of this, the, this work on Trinitarian koinonia theology has been applied within ecumenical theology to ecclesiology, the the fellowship that the church has the sharing that the church has in the life of the triune God, the participation that the life of the triune God has in the life of the church, and that being a framework for envisioning the connections that we have with one another, which are in fact already there even when not being made fully visible because we all who belong to Christ have this koinonia, this fellowship in the divine life and therefore also have this with each other. But the ecumenical movement, the quest for a more visibly united church, is about making uh, the connections of this koinonia more and more visible. Now, you mentioned earlier Cardinal uh, Walter Casper, who used to head up the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, During one of the rounds of Baptist Catholic conversations that we had in Rome, uh, Cardinal Casper, who had just retired or was about to retire, came and had a session with us in which he engaged in a a rather informal dialogue and frankly shared a lot of his perspectives on uh, the ecumenical movement, its failures, its successes, where Baptists and Catholics fit into all that. But he affirmed what has become a more common ecumenical paradigm of envisioning the possibility of a communion of communions. Uh, this idea is rooted in a, a koinonia ecclesiology. And by the way, I should have mentioned a while ago that one way that word is sometimes translated is uh, communion. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that word to talk about our Uh, sharing in the blood of Christ. Um, The the Eucharist is a koinonia, uh, sharing in the life of Christ, sharing in the life of God, sharing in the life of one another. Well, within a koinonia ecclesiology, a communion of communions might be possible in which some of these distinctive patterns of faith and practice that ought not to be permanently church dividing, are preserved and offered to the whole church um, so that Baptists in some sense continue to be Baptists, Methodists continue to be Methodists, Catholics continue to be Catholics, but in which we have worked enough on the barriers to full communion with each other, that full communion, meaning Eucharistic sharing, recognitions of baptisms recognitions of one another's ordained ministries, other markers of visible unity, that might be possible within a a full communion of a communion of communions. Well, all of that is related to this communion uh, koinonia kind of ecclesiology. Yeah, and I think
0: that takes us back to this idea of receptive ecumenism. If we continue to practice this mutual sharing, then we'll see uh, the unique gifts that don't only come from simple ideas, but a whole history uh, that has uh, has fostered these expressions of the Church of Christ or the kingdom of God within our own traditions. From your own experience and uh, thinking about receptive ecumenism and how this, this mutual sharing, this koinonia, um, is an opportunity for us to come closer together as Christians, what do you see coming from your Baptist uh, background and your Baptist tradition are gifts, expressions of the church of Christ that maybe even the Catholic church could receive as, as Paul says, with a dynamic integrity. And conversely, what are some things that you would hope that your Baptist tradition uh, could receive from the Catholic church?
1: From the, the perspective of a Baptist thinking about gifts we could offer Catholics and the rest of the church. And I'm going to try to answer this in a way that hopefully will not have a kind of Baptist triumphalism behind it, because there are people who have explained things related to what I'm about to mention who uh, really have done that kind of thing. I think one could argue that the Catholic Church has already received a particular Baptist gift. And, and that is the Baptist emphasis on religious liberty. Part of this comes from the early Baptist experience of being a persecuted religious minority. And we should say that that, that initially was not at the hands of Catholics. <laughs> uh, something that Baptists and Catholics shared in common historically, interestingly, was the experience of being fellow persecuted religious minorities within a church state establishment in England. Mm. Um, But Baptists have growing out of that experience, really emphasized the desirability of there not being established state churches, uh, that they have prized conscience, uh, freedom of conscience, that they sought For themselves within England initially, uh, a freedom that they did not have under the Church of England and under this church state establishment in England to follow where they believed the Spirit was leading them in their reading of Scripture uh, to configure their life together under the rule of Christ. And that led them historically to advocate that others ought to have that kind of liberty too. That uh, there there ought to be something of a, not, not a division, not a complete isolation from one another, but a kind of separation between church and state that would afford religious liberty to people living in a particular place under a particular system of government, to uh, to embrace their own religious convictions, to embrace their their own uh, tradition. Now, this is where I want to avoid some Baptist triumphalism, but one could argue that because of the influence of Baptist and Free Church Christians on the American experiment in religious liberty, which was experienced. Uh, up close and personally, by the Catholic theologian John Courtney Murray, who taught at at Yale University, Yale Divinity School, who was the principal drafter of what became the Vatican II decree on religious liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, uh, on human dignity, with religious liberty being something that is a part of Uh, guaranteeing human dignity, respect for human life, and uh, the freedom of religion for humanity. One could argue that Murray was influenced in the way he crafted things theologically in what essentially became the Vatican II decree by his experience living in the United States in a system uh, that guaranteed or sought to preserve uh, or safeguard religious liberty that had been influenced by Baptists in some other free church traditions. One could argue that in some fashion, Baptists have offered to the rest of the world this gift of religious liberty in a way that the Catholic tradition has received, so that... uh, Pope John Paul II, for example, in in referencing Dignitatis Humanae in in his encyclical Ut Unum Sent, that they may be one, his encyclical on ecumenism, he mentions there that, that there is a sense in which religious liberty is a precondition for ecumenism. Unless people are free to embrace their religious convictions, There cannot be the kind of authentic ecumenical encounter uh, that's desirable for the progress of the ecumenical movement. So that's one example of a a gift that I think the the Baptist tradition offers. Baptists have not always uh, ideally represented this other gift that I'm about to mention, But because historically, Baptists had the experience of being kind of on the margins of British society, persecuted within that context, they have at their best, although we've not always ideally done this, uh, come alongside others who are marginalized, who are pushed to the margins of their society. If I think about the American Civil Rights Movement, there were Baptist failures to do that. There were also Baptists who did, in fact, do that, uh, coming alongside oppressed African Americans, giving solidarity to them, joining voices with them. But I think that when Baptists have done that, that is something that the rest of the church could receive as a gift, too. I don't think Baptists are the only ones who have had solidarity with the other Uh, Catholics have done that quite in a quite exemplary fashion too, in ways that Baptists could learn from. And we're certainly not the only ones who have advocated for religious liberty, but those are a couple of uh, of Baptist gifts that we could offer. Um, What could we receive from Catholics? I think uh, spirituality, patterns of, spiritu- of spirituality that originate within Catholicism that, that have been preserved by the Catholic traditions are, are things that Baptists could well receive and have been in the process of doing so. In, in my own Baptist-related divinity school, uh, our professor uh, of spiritual formation has students learn the practice of Lectio Divina. Uh, In in a very disciplined kind of meditative reading of scripture, listening for the voice of the Spirit speaking through the scriptures, that didn't originate with Baptists. Uh, Our professor, she is intentionally uh, receiving that from the tradition of Catholic spirituality and offering that to Baptist students and others uh, as a way of reading scripture that can draw us more fully into the divine life. Patterns of worship, uh, the the practice of following the full Christian year, preaching from the lectionary of readings, uh, that's a a practice of Catholic worship that uh, some Baptists have received in a, a very profitable way. Many Baptists have, have sometimes said that we we have no creed but the Bible, and so have have resisted doing things like reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed as acts of worship. However, there have been Baptists who have done that. When, when the Baptist World Alliance was founded in 1905 at their first assembly, their their first president invited the the participants to to rise and repeat after him the Apostles' Creed as an indication of where Baptists stand in relationship to the church that is bigger than than we are. Mm. And there have been other Baptists who have been able to to receive the, the Creed not as coercive instruments of enforced doctrinal uniformity, but rather as concise summaries of the biblical story uh, that is told at length and with rich particularity by the Bible itself. The the creeds help us be more biblical. And many Baptists have been able to receive the creeds into our own uh, catechesis or teaching Christian education and even worship now and then. Just a few examples of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think this is great. And I really like uh, your emphasis on on a particular gift that Baptists give to the whole of uh, the church and all, all Christians. And I actually think that's really uh, an important gift for ecumenism in particular, because oftentimes uh, ecumenism can be, in some ways, uh, just seen as an academic project or something that's done through... A particular hierarchy, or it's just this this one person's interest. But you know, I, I don't really have an interest in that. I don't really have any say in that. But if you emphasize the idea of a religious liberty, you're kind of pulling on a a bit of a personalism in that, a sense of how is God speaking to me? And so, some thinking in my own Catholic uh, history, Ignatius of Loyola would have a big emphasis on, on the idea that. God is speaking to us right now. And uh, Lexio is a great example of how the word of God speaks to us individually. And so it's, it's I can see that as being a beautiful gift that opens us up to recognizing that our unity and our movements towards unity and the work of ecumenism can't simply be relegated to um, one subset of the church, but needs to be on the congregational level as well. And that our will and our heart uh, needs to be changed. And Unitatis Gratio mentions that there's no ecumenism worthy of the name without a change of heart. And that has to be an individual heart as well as a collective heart, I believe. So that's a, I can see that being a really great gift. As you have been working, I know you you do uh, seminars sometimes with uh, groups of churches or individual churches. and Obviously within teaching, you're talking to students all the time. What are some things that you would encourage people um, congregations, people on the ground to get involved within the ecumenical movement, within their own space. What are some ideas that you've either seen or some things that you suggest to uh, people in this way?
1: Uh, one thing that, that, that I think is, is terribly important is that ecumenical encounter not simply be what happens at the top level. Uh, through the work of formal ecumenical dialogue, whether it's internationally or nationally or regionally. uh, That is hugely important. I believe in it. That's why I'm involved in it. But all too often, the fruit of that is, is simply a written report that may sit on the shelf or may exist out there in cyberspace on the internet, but very little is actually done with it in ways that filter down to the life of, of local churches at the grassroots in their relationships with each other. And I think one way of bridging the gap between grassroots ecumenical encounter and the formal work of ecumenical dialogue is for churches that belong to denominational traditions that have informal dialogue with each other and have produced some of these uh Agreed statements or reports. One place to start would be for pastors, ministers, priests of these local congregations that are in neighboring relationship with each other locally uh, to read those statements together as ministers and uh, have some dialogue growing out of that and perhaps envision in light of these agreements that we've been able to reach, are, are there some ways that we could flesh this out right here where we live? That, that could involve things like, first of all, drawing some members of their respective churches to, to form a larger study group that they might co-lead in which they work through these things. But they might be able to envision in light of the unity that does exist, In light of the agreements that we have been able to reach, even if there are still some other important church dividing differences, are there some ways that we could live this out? Mm -hmm. Are there ways that we could more intentionally worship together? Are there ways that we could more intentionally participate in meeting the needs of the community around us so that we're not duplicating resources or ministries, but engaging in some shared ministry? Are there ways in which we could address issues in our community together so that we we speak with more of a united Christian voice toward those issues? Uh, that can also become a way of offering witness together. It, it so happens that in our Baptist Catholic dialogue right now, phase one of that dialogue back in the 80s uh, had produced a report titled Summons to Witness to Christ, which recognized right at the beginning that we've got very important things in common, uh, chiefly Jesus Christ himself. Uh, We have some common Christological commitments, and we also have in common Jesus's own summons to us, Uh, to go and teach all nations, to share the good news of God's salvation in, in, in Christ together. So already that envisioned that one of the most important ways that Baptists and Catholics could live out Christian unity with each other is by finding ways to bear witness to Christ together. Well, phase two addressed all kinds of of significant theological issues that we have between us in some very helpful ways. But phase three that we're doing right now is returning to this idea of common witness. So we're envisioning what might it mean for us to do uh, to engage in some concrete practices of bearing witness to Jesus Christ in today's world together. And one thing that we're moving toward right now is looking uh, locally at the grassroots for concrete examples of where this is already being done by Baptists and Catholics together, so that we can commend these and then envision further, here are some more things that we could do together to bear witness to Jesus in our communities and
0: yeah, that's a, a beautiful vision, and it's really uh, something that would be quite easy to do. It wouldn't, wouldn't be too terribly hard because those, those documents are right there. Um, and one part that I really like about the from phase two, um, the Word of God and the life of the church, is this understanding as uh, within that document, your guys' dialogues. You're talking about uh, baptism and this point of initiation within to the Christian life, but it seemed like there was this. Uh, recognition, a kind of a, uh, I don't know if it was an epiphany or just a, like a slow uh, evolution of thought that sees baptism as, um, as being a way of life. And it'd be really interesting to get, you know, two local communities, a Catholic parish, a Baptist church, and to, uh, to read especially this one point in this document and say, okay, well, how, how are we living out our baptismal identity? And that seems like that could be a koinonia image in a lot of ways. And uh, something that could be very fruitful for the idea of sanctification or deification. And uh, then you start to pull in other traditions within that. I I come from a Wesleyan holiness background. So the sanctification language is, is, uh, is, is quite uh, beautiful and striking and how this might be lived out within uh, a shared baptismal identity individually. And as our communities, Uh, just to, to finish this out, what, Since you have this experience of of working internationally with the BWA, working with students in your teaching and through your writing, you have just, you know, so many opportunities to see new spaces of ecumenical endeavor happening. What are you most excited about right now within the ecumenical movement? And where do you see the Spirit of God leading us in this pilgrim journey of unity?
1: I think this paradigm of receptive ecumenism that we we've talked about some today is an exciting development within the ecumenical movement. Um, I talk about this a a bit in the book. I I see my own Baptist tradition as in many ways having some openings to receptive ecumenism built into the tradition itself that that could make it a a way of of helping Baptists see this as, as something that's true to who they are. And I think this could be for, true for other traditions as well. But for Baptists, th- this is an exciting entree into the ecumenical movement um, because the Baptist tradition, unlike some others, doesn't have a, a single foundational theologian, like, say, Martin Luther for Lutherans, or Wesley for Methodists, or, say, John Calvin for Reformed and and Presbyterian Christians. We we don't have that kind of figure, making us then open to the possibility of receiving theological insights from some others beyond our own tradition. We, We don't have a fixed or mandated liturgy, which means that, in theory, Baptist freedom, congregationally, can mean receiving some of the liturgical riches of the rest of the churches into our own life of worship. Um, we we have issued confessions of faith uh, quite liberally along the way. There, there, there are editions that are rather thick at the spine of Baptist confessions of faith. We've issued a lot of them, but we've tended to regard those as tentative expressions of our understanding of faith and practice. They're, they're, they're not normally binding in the way that some other confessional documents for other traditions are, which means that they're also, we're, we're open to the insights of others beyond our own communion. All this means that Baptists can be a receptive ecumenical community and I think that's a way for for us to find our place within the ecumenical movement. But that can be true for for other traditions as well. There, there are lots of challenges to the ecumenical movement right now. There there were there was all kinds of exciting progress being made in the wake of Vatican II and the, the full entry of the the largest communion of Christians worldwide into the instruments of the modern ecumenical movement. Um, There were convergences like baptism, Eucharist, and ministry in 1982, That especially the point of baptismal recognition offered some ways forward. There, There was the landmark agreement in 1999 between the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church the the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, recognizing that while there were still church dividing differences between Lutherans and Catholics, what had been a church dividing difference in the 16th century, respective understandings of the doctrine of justification, no longer should be seen as a church dividing difference. And Others have been able to join that since. The, the Baptist World Alliance is in our Commission on Baptist Doctrine and Christian Unity in the process of having some formal conversations about how Baptists might be able to enter into the Joint Declaration on Justification as well. So that's been a lot of exciting progress. But to many observers of the ecumenical movement, that that seems stalled in many ways In some ways, it seems like Christians are becoming uh, more divided instead of uh, uh, more united. There there seems to have been an ecumenical retreat on a lot of quarters. There there are a lot of, of divisive issues that are no longer between denominations and each other, but are dividing within denominations that greatly complicate the, the quest for a more visible Christian unity. But despite all that, I'm, I'm optimistic that the spirit who has always been there in the life of the church is in the midst of all this division leading us toward the unity of the triune God and I think there are lots of openings for helping us get there. Receptive ecumenism is one of those. As is this this emphasis on what happens at the grassroots in, in real embodied relationships with each other locally. Yeah, and that's all opportunities for being
0: uh, hopeful as the Lord is continuing to lead us. I, I had this image in my mind of just the the disillusioned disciples on the road to Emmaus trying to talk through and understand their experience and thinking, yeah, I thought we were going somewhere. And as they're talking about this, they experience Christ. And at the table, they're, they're sent on mission. And so perhaps it's a time in which we, as we experience Christ in one another, we'll be reoriented away from this ecumenical winter and into a new springtime. And I, I agree, I think receptive ecumenism and this opportunity for the whole church to engage in the ecumenical movement of, of deepening unity through the vision of Koinonia, uh, it will be incredibly helpful. So, Steve, thank you so much for taking uh, this time with us today. And I would encourage everybody to, to grab a copy of Baptist Catholics in the whole church. It's I couldn't have put the book down. I really enjoyed reading it because it includes so many important points of the ecumenical history, but also your own stories of how you're seeing uh, the the lord moving within especially Baptist and catholic relations so thank you for your time today
1: you're welcome thank you nathan blessings upon your your own living out of the unity of the body of christ (laughs) blessings to you too